Hello friends, my name is Ian Graham and I'm the pastor of Ecclesia in Princeton, New Jersey. And I am so excited to introduce to you this teaching series, a series that will look at the story, the big story that the Bible is telling from Genesis to Revelation, a series we're calling From Garden City. The story begins in a garden and it ends in a city and is defined at every twist and turn by the love and the presence of God. That God will stop at nothing to be God with us. And so if you've ever tried to read the Bible or you've ever been asked, what what actually is the Bible about? We hope that this teaching series will be a blessing to you. It will be an invitation to see the big story of the Bible and to see your story in light of that beautiful, gracious, life-giving, eternal story. So wherever you are, we pray this is a blessing to you. Grace and peace to you. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. When you have come into the land the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set over you a king, whom the Lord your God will choose. One of your own community you may set as king over you. You are not permitted to put a foreigner over you, who is not of your own community. Even so, he must not acquire many horses for himself or return the people to Egypt in order to acquire more horses, since the Lord has said to you, you must never return that way again. And he must not acquire many wives for himself, or else his heart will turn astray. Also silver and gold he must not acquire in great quantity for himself. When he has taken the throne of his kingdom, he shall have a copy of this law written for him in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall remain with him, and he shall read it in it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, diligently observing all the words of this law and these statutes, neither exalting himself above other members of the community, nor turning aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he and his descendants may reign long over his kingdom in Israel. The word of the Lord. That's the kind of, that's what we're building here. As we're talking about the king, he must not set himself over the community. Oh, let's pray. God, you're good. Lord, would you just help us in these moments to hear your word spoken over us, God, as an invitation to life. God, this is the truest thing that we will hear during the course of our week. God, that you love us. God, that you will not be God apart from us, God. And that's not just us collectively. It is each individual person in here. Lord, you've designed us, woven us in the womb to know you. God, may this be an expression of that as heaven meets earth in a manifest way. As your word speaks new worlds, new possibilities, God, would you spur us on? Would your presence be so heavy here that your glory would be known? We love you, Lord God. We pray all these things in your name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, I hope so far, I hope you found this journey. We've been doing biblical theology in community 
over the course of this semester. And I hope that you found this journey to be illuminating. I hope that you've been like, wow, I didn't know that was in there. I didn't know that was that good. I hope you found it to be beautiful in ways that you hadn't expected. I hope that you found a story big enough for all the pieces of your life, for all the good stuff, the joy, the things that bring us just such like adulation. We're just overwhelmed. I hope you found a story big enough for all of the pain, the sorrow, the boredom, the ambition. Like, I have this sense that if we knew the story that we have been invited into, that we are heirs to, we would never settle for anything less. And that is so much of what this series has been about. And now we're at about the midpoint, the midpoint of the semester, if you will. So now it's time for a bit of a, a midterm review. And uh, there will be a test after. Genesis 1 is where we started because you begin in the beginning. And in the beginning, words create worlds. God speaks the word into existence and he calls it good and blessed. The story in Genesis 1 is like a poem. It's not trying to explain the origins of the universe, so scientists breathe easy. It's trying to say, this is who God is, and therefore this is who you are. You are made in his image, female and male alike. You are made in the image of God. And the narrative in Genesis 1 has all the markings. There were other cultures that were present at the time of ancient Israel. And that narrative, that poem, has all the markings of an ancient deity taking up residence in a temple. But this God does not live in a temple made by human hands. This God fills the entire earth with his glory. The entire cosmos is the temple of the living God. And this God doesn't need idols to show people what he looks like because he has made people in his image. People called to bear his image. And every person that we see bears the image of the eternal God. That's Genesis 1. Genesis 2. What does it mean to live in light of this world? What are humans for? And Wendell Berry's beautiful phrase. What does it mean for us to live in light of this God? Is creation just this static thing that we're trying not to mess up, which we don't get very far, right? If you know the story, we only get about three chapters. But Genesis 2 is calling us to explore, to play, to live in light of this God. It's, it's such a better story than we're often told. There's gold in that place. Go find it. This is what God is saying to us. What does it mean to be human? The garden, initially, this place that is the setting of shalom is a place of praise, of worship, of justice. There's trees that are good for food, of beauty. It's a place that is, something is happening and transpiring. God has called us to be his partner and to enter into his story. Now, in Genesis 3, there's distrust. Did God really say that? Is God really that good? No, we don't really know. And oftentimes that is where the fracture enters in. That's where shalom is shattered. When we start to say, oh, I don't know, God, I don't know if I can trust you with this. Genesis 3 marks a turning point in the story, but not a turning point in the heart of God. God will not give up on us. And Genesis 12 begins to form the answer, what will God do about this shattering of shalom? What will God do about this unraveling? Well, he will do what he's always done. He will be God with us. 
He will not settle for a project. He will not settle for some bureaucratic system where he can tell people that he's God. Rather, he will enter into relationship with Abraham, who is called Abraham because he's the father of many nations. We've always known that. That's a little joke for those of you who were here a couple weeks ago. God will not settle for being God apart from us. God will not be a God at arm's length. He will be God with us. And his answer to the problem that affects the whole world is to meet a single family at a single point in history and to say, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Then we fast forwarded to Exodus. Throughout Genesis and Exodus, it would appear at different times, whether it be because of the character of the biblical characters. Like if you've read about people like Jacob, you're like, God works through people like this? Apparently. Whether it be through the, the actions of the people who are a part of the story, or whether it be, as in Exodus, where the whole story seems like it's placed in peril, how can God bless the nations through a group of people who are now enslaved? What will God do to keep his promises in the face of all of these circumstances? But God engages the gods of Egypt, systematically dismantling them through a series of plagues. He enters into cosmic conflict with them. And the Passover, as we talked about last week, is God's judgment upon the gods of Egypt. And as Pharaoh's army pursues the people, God makes a way through the sea. They walk through the water on dry land. And as the army of Pharaoh pursues them into the sea, he closes the waters upon them. The people are free. And then he brings them to Mount Sinai and tells them this is what it means to be a free people. Those words that we've come to know as the Ten Commandments are not just commandments in a way that they're trying to suppress us into something, but they're trying to invite us into freedom. And God says that you will be for me a holy priesthood. And what do priests do? They tell the world what God looks like. And for us today, this is where we pick up the story. The people are called to be a priesthood. And we're just going to survey these words that were given throughout what's called the Torah. Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. The Torah tells us what it means to be the priesthood in the, in the way of this God. The people are called to be a priesthood of worship and of justice. One of the first things that God instructs the people to do is to build a table, an ark of Acacia in Exodus 25. He says, this will be a place of meeting because, again, God will not be God apart from us. He will only be God with us. And this is where we will meet. And then he tells them to build a tabernacle. The first people that are filled with the Holy Spirit of God in the scriptures are artists. Artists called to build the tent that will accompany the people as they wander through the wilderness. You see, God is going to take these people on a journey. And the life with God has always been a journey. So if you don't have it all figured out right now, you're in good company. And God is going to take these people through the wilderness. But he says, you will have markers of my presence in your midst. And as you camp in the different places that you come to, you will array your tents around this tabernacle, this tent of meeting. And at the center of that tent of meeting will be this ark of my presence. God is trying to say to us. He will stop at nothing to be God with us. We will be a priesthood of worship. Our whole life will be oriented 
both physically and spiritually around this God. And we will be a people of justice. You see, the Bible allows for no sophistry as it comes to our own expectation of what it means to be holy. We can't just be holy on the inside and not love well on the outside. There is no distinction or separation between these two things. Leviticus 6, verses 1 through 7, it's a great example of this. The Lord spoke to Moses, it says, saying, When any of you sin and commit a trespass against the Lord by deceiving a neighbor in a matter of a deposit or a pledge or by robbery, or if you have defrauded a neighbor or have found something lost and lied about it, if you swear falsely regarding any of the various things that one may do and sin thereby, when you have sinned and you realize your guilt... And would restore what you took by robbery or by fraud or the deposit that was committed to you or the lost thing that you found or anything else about which you have sworn falsely. Listen to this. You shall repay the principal amount and shall add one-fifth to it. So not only are you to restore that which was lost, you are to pay interest on what you have taken. Sounds like reparations. You shall pay it to its owner when you realize your guilt, and you shall bring to the priest as your guilt offering to the Lord a ram without blemish from the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. The priest shall make atonement on your behalf before the Lord, and you shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and incur guilt thereby. Do you see how these things are interwoven? First, The command is, if you take something, you are to restore it and pay interest. And second, you are to go to the priest and make an offering. Justice and holiness are merged together. They are intertwined in a way that we cannot pull asunder. Jesus says, if you have have a, a quarrel with your sister or your brother, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled. We cannot love God without loving our neighbor. And that is what this priesthood is called to reflect. Moses will later say in Deuteronomy, he says, Circumcise then the foreskin of your heart. Now, I know circumcision is kind of a weird thing, but it was a way of marking the people of God. It was an identity marker. It said that we are God's special possession. We are his people in the earth. And so Moses is saying, don't be marked just physically, but be marked at the depths of who you are. Do not be stubborn any longer, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Notice this. As the people are called to be a priesthood of worship and justice, they are called to remember that they were slaves. They can never lose their fundamental identity. The the fact that God has saved them out of this pit of despair and turn them into a people that will be his special possession. And so he's saying part of being God's special possession is remembering those who are the most vulnerable amongst us. What does it mean to be the priesthood in the form of this God? It's to be a people who look after, as as Moses will say here in Deuteronomy 10, who execute justice for the orphan and the widow, and who love the strangers, providing them food and clothing. You shall also love the strangers, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. We were called to be a priesthood. And friends, we live in a culture 
that would read this verse and would be like, yeah. And do you know why? Because everything about our culture has these echoes of this great Judeo, now Christian heritage. Our impulse to take care of the vulnerable among us, even to give lip service to it, is not the product of some evolution of progressive secularism. It's not the natural progression of what it means to be human. This all comes from this word that was so contrary to the culture. This was a word that called us out to be a people that were different in the world, to execute justice on behalf of those who could not fight for themselves. And this is our inheritance today. This is what it means to be a priesthood, a people called by God. We are a priesthood of worship and justice. Now, you might suppose that if you were a child of Israel, during the time of the Passover and the Exodus, God liberates you. It's this incredible event. The night happens, the day dawns, and you are leaving Egypt. And not only are you leaving Egypt, you are taking their stuff with you. You're like, thank you, Pharaoh, for all your nice gold and silver. I do appreciate it. We'll see you later. No more free labor for you, Pharaoh. Go out of Egypt, and you walk into the wilderness you're wandering there, and you hear Pharaoh's army pursuing you. You turn around, you're terrified, but Moses is like, non-anxious presence. I got this. We're good. Lifts up his hands. God parts the Red Sea. And then you walk through on dry land. There are literally walls of water on each side of you. Like there's just marine life just swimming around. And you're like, wow, <laughs> didn't know they had dolphins in the Red Sea. How about that? Then as you turn around, and this army is pursuing you, God closes the water. You see the armies of Pharaoh, and they are just gone. You might suppose that that event, witnessing and experiencing that, would be enough to sustain you for at least a little while. Like, you'd be like, ah, I don't know, we're in the wilderness now, and there's not a lot to eat in the desert. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe there won't be enough to eat. But, you know, like, I did see God do that whole thing with the Red Sea. Perhaps he, he can do the food thing, too. Like, perhaps we're going to be okay. Or, like, there's not much to drink, but perhaps God can provide some water for us. You might suppose that would be true. However, the people of Israel last all of about three chapters before they're like, oh my God, why did you take us out of slavery? At least we had enough to eat in slavery. Like Moses gets to a point where he's so inundated with the complaints of these people. He's like, God, you can just kill me. And those of you who have led something, you kind of know. Like sometimes it's like, Lord Jesus, you're going to have to kill them or me. And Moses is just like, oh my word. Now, you might suppose that that would be enough to sustain you. Jesus says that even if you saw somebody raised from the dead, you still wouldn't believe. There's something about the architecture of faith that witnessing just monumental events doesn't quite, it doesn't quite hold us. The people in Israel cannot and do not default to trust. Even though they've seen God do incredible things. They constantly are mistrusting God. They build a golden calf out of, out of the gold that they take from Egypt. They squander the gift of God. 
and they worship an idol when the living God, this God who had been traveling with them in a, in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, they settle for the idolatry of something they can manage and hold. And what we find as the scriptures begin to unfold the story, you see, it would be an amazing story. Typically, like the people are liberated from Egypt, like this epic conflict has been concluded, the good guys win, fade to black, right? But that's just the beginning point of the story of the scriptures. That's just the beginning point of the story it's inviting us into. And what we find is that at every turn, it's not just that we have to get the people out of Egypt. The scriptures are asking the question, how do we get Egypt out of the people? Because there's something within us that defaults towards mistrust. There's something within us that defaults towards idolatry. There's something within us that defaults towards injustice. Even though we have a history of grace, any, unlike any story told in the nation of the earth, any other story that competes, that God liberates a nation of slaves, that Jesus died on a cross and was resurrected, even though that is our inheritance, we so easily default to things that we can hold in our hands. And nowhere is this seen more starkly than Israel's desire for a king. And that's where this story takes us today. We're going to kind of survey the kingship as we talk about what kind of priesthood are we supposed to be. First Samuel chapter 8. Samuel was a kind of a non-official leader, kind of a de facto leader. He wasn't a king. He didn't have that kind of authority. But people recognized that he talked to God. And so he was the leader of the people. But Samuel's getting old. And if you read the story, Samuel's kids are terrible. Like, it's just not going to work. For him to pass on the mantle to his kids. And so the people are like, hey, your kids are terrible. Like, you're a great leader. You did a terrible job at home. Like, you should have read some parenting books or something. And so Samuel, in this place, is at an advanced age. And the people come to him. And they say, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to govern us. So the people come and they say, give us a king. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. This is God talking. They've rejected me from being king over them, just as they have done to me from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing that to you. Now then, listen to their voice. Now, don't miss this. God is not keen on the people having a king. He's not like, this is a great idea. I'm sorry. I'm God. I just didn't think of that. God is saying, that's what they want. That's okay. And God meets us in our, even our misplaced desires. Like, God meets us in those places. That's an incredible thing. God doesn't love the idea of a king being set over Israel, but he acquiesces to it. He says, I can work with that. And the first king that he selects is Saul. Now, Saul's got all the kingly credentials. Tall, stately, handsome, good in battle, good-looking guy. Saul starts out strong, but he does not finish well. Saul has a fickle heart. He has a fear of people that leads him astray. And so the Saul project gets scrapped. Then David. Now, David is a man after God's own heart. David is one who spends time writing poetry and then goes out and slays thousands in battle. David is this one who God remarks and, and marks with his presence in a special way. But even David, if you know the story, 
David commits this conspiracy, rapes Bathsheba, kills her husband. David is no saint. There seems to be a problem within the kingship. David's son, Solomon. But even in the midst of these flawed kings, and we're going to survey this ever so briefly, God will not stop making promises to the people and saying, I will be God with you. I will be your God. I will be your king, and I will be your God in your midst. He says to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he says, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And just as we saw with the covenant that was given to Abraham, this covenant that's given to David will form one of the fundamental strands of the architecture of the biblical story. There's the covenant given to Abraham about land, and there's the covenant given to David that he will never cease to have an heir on the throne, that God will continue to be faithful to David and his line, even when that line is profoundly unfaithful. The New Testament writers will constantly pick up on this theme that Jesus is a king in the line of David. For instance, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the first words that Matthew says about Jesus of Nazareth, he says an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Matthew, like all of the New Testament writers, is saturated in the Old Testament story. That, for them, formed the scriptural imagination. And Matthew is saying, that king is like the king that you knew before, the king that you've been waiting for, a king in the line of David. And the text that Zechariah read for us from Deuteronomy chapter 17 is Moses speaking to the people and saying, listen, this is going to happen. When you get into the land, you're going to want something you can see. Like, think about it. All the other nations have a king. They have somebody who leads them into battle. They have a strong man at the beginning of the battle lines. We want somebody like that. See, a king, in some ways, is kind of like an idol. It's something you can see, something you can put your faith in, put your trust in. And Moses is saying, you're going to ask for a king. He says this in Deuteronomy 17. He says, when you have come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, as I'm reading this, I want you to pay attention to what Moses says the king should not do. Don't do these things. When you've come into the land the Lord your God has given you, and you've taken possession of it and settled in it, you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set over you a king, whom the Lord your God will choose, one of your own community. You may set his king over you. You are not permitted to put a foreigner over you who is not of your own community. Even so, he must not acquire many horses for himself. Or return the people to Egypt in order to acquire more horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you must never return that way again. And he must not acquire many wives for himself. Or else his heart will turn away. Also silver and gold he must not acquire in great quantity for himself. When he has taken the throne of his kingdom, he shall, not have, he shall have a copy of this law written for him in the presence of the Levitical priests. So a couple things it says. Three things. Do not... Do not acquire many horses. What's God got against horses? We'll see. Horses are the symbol of a strong military apparatus in this time. It's Bronze Age time. So not many horses. Not many wives. Sounds like sound advice. One wife is very good. And not acquire much silver and gold. 
a kingdom not devoted, so we'll see in just a moment, this, this marker of silver and gold is not like God doesn't want to make you rich, all that kind of stuff. But he's saying a, a king that's devoted to increasing in silver and gold is, is built upon what Walter Brueggemann calls opulence and self-aggrandizement, only achievable through oppressive taxation and forced labor. Now, 1 Kings chapter 10, keep those in mind, don't do these things. Solomon, son of David, gathered together chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. Wait, he's got a lot of horses. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. Solomon, did you not read Deuteronomy? Did you not keep this book of the law in front of you every moment? Huh. And he made cedars as numerous as the sycamores, the shephelah. Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt. Not again. You should not go back that way again. And the king's traders received them from Ku at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. So through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram. King Solomon loved many foreign women. That's definitely in there. You're not supposed to do that. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the Israelites, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for they will surely incline your heart to follow their gods. Solomon clung to these and loved. Among his wives were 700 princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not true to the Lord his God. What a tragedy. If you know the story of Solomon, it starts out all the potential. The Lord says to Solomon, what do you want me to do for you? And Solomon says, I want wisdom. And then we see the marking of the end of his life that his heart was turned away. Because he settled for lesser things. And the, as the biblical story weaves this motif of the king, it's constantly saying that as goes the king, so goes the people. That as the king is the representative of the people, the one out in front, so the people are following close behind. Solomon's checking off all the boxes that Moses said, don't do these things. Don't try to fortify your own life in such a way that you don't need God, that you can save yourself. Don't chase after all the stories the smaller stories that would try to subsume you into them and would say, this is your identity, this is who you are, when you have been made and called a child of God, a daughter and a son. And don't build your life on the backs of other people. Don't increase in gold and silver when it costs others. And Moses warns the people that if the covenant with God is not the central orienting principle of their life, if they're not like in the, the image of the wilderness, their lives are not arrayed around the tabernacle, the point where God meets with the people at the center, if that's not who we are, then judgment will come. Moses says to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 30, he says, see, I set before you today life 
and good, death and evil. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will have life and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away like Solomon's, and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and to worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. Solomon tried to fortify his life. His heart is turned away to other gods. And as the king goes, so goes the nation. Moses is warning us. He's saying, put your life, build your life around these things, as Jesus would say. Those who build their lives upon his word and his teachings we'll find that when the storms of life come, that there's something solid holding us. But when we build our lives on sinking sand, on quicksand, when the storms of life come, we find that we are just washed away with them. And as the king goes in the imagination of the people of the Bible, so goes the nation. One very harrowing example from Isaiah chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He's talking to his people here, not to some other people out there. He says, listen to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this from your hand? Trample my courts no more. Bringing offerings is futile. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath are calling a vocation. I cannot endure solemn assemblies with iniquity. Your new moons and your appointed festivals my soul hates. This is God talking. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. You see, as the king goes, as the king lives his life in mistrust and opposition to God, so go the people. And as we see in Isaiah chapter 1, Sort of the last straw before what is to come, the, the punishment that is to come, which is exile. God is saying, you've not been the priesthood that I called you to be. You're showing up for worship, but there's no justice, and I hate your songs. That's scary. He says, the only way is to reorient our lives around who God has called us to be, the kind of priesthood that God has called us to be, a priesthood of worship and of justice. And as a result, as Moses warned, and as Savannah will unpack for us next week, the result is exile. And friends, don't worry. There is good news in exile. This is the scandal of God's covenant love for us. And for those of us in here today, I just want to talk to two of us. Maybe some of you are like Solomon. You're just, you're just chasing after whatever comes to mind. And I think, again, when it comes to somebody like Solomon, we always think that it's something, like it has to be something flashy. Like you have to be chasing riches or trying to kill it at work. Like, as we've seen, hopefully throughout our time together, there are very holy and good ways to do those things. 
very, very God-honoring ways to be a people alive to God's presence and still pursuing holy ambition. These are not, but I think so often we hear this story of Solomon and we're like, I'm not rich. I don't have a ton of uh, spouses, <laughs> no concubines, and so therefore that's not me. But we miss the thread of the story. Solomon is just trying to fortify his own life. He's trying to be his own savior. And if that's you today, Moses has a warning for you. God is gracious in his warnings. He's not just saying, okay, you did that, here you go. God is persistent, saying, don't go that way. I set before you life and death. Choose life. There are moments to get off the off-ramp of sometimes the way our life is spiraling down. And I think for some of us today, we need to heed that word. Now, the second group, for those of you who maybe you came in here today and you find yourself in exile, You find yourself at the end of this rope. Can I just say to you that Jesus' address is at the end of your rope? That this is not a condemnation, that you, you got what you deserved. And God is like, see, we could reverse engineer all the decisions you made. Look what you did. And look where it got you. You've made your own bed. Now lie in it. That's not our God. God says, even... The psalmist, even if I were to make my bed in the depths of hell, still you would be there. God will not give up on you in exile. He will not relent. He will not stop being God with us. And the beauty of the Jesus story, this big story that we have been surveying at such a beautiful pace, is that Jesus is a different kind of king. There is another king and another kingdom. And Jesus invites you into his way. His way is not built upon the backs of other people, but is built upon his very own back, carrying a cross. And his way is not at a distance from exile, but he goes into exile to meet us there and says, follow me. There is a way out. There is a resurrection on the other side of exile. And some of you, some of us, we need that good news today, that even though we may be At the logical conclusion of our decisions, Jesus doesn't just work in logic. He doesn't just work in calculus. He meets us with his presence. And he says, I am alive forevermore. And because I've gone through death, given my body and my blood, and come out conquering the other side, that there is a kingdom that is available to you that invites us into a different story.